uh, thankful for your word that uh, though the uh, last words were written almost 2,000 years ago, it is still alive and it still speaks to us today. And many parts of it actually even address our conduct specifically. And so we ask as we look at these things tonight that we might be encouraged by them in terms of how uh, our lives might be reflected in these truths and we thank you for it, amen. So, um, if you look, open your Bibles to John chapter uh, 13, John 13, got a, two verses we want to just read in advance of the verse we're going to look at tonight. <coughs> John chapter 13, if you look at uh, verse 33, John 13, 33. He says, little children, yet for a little while I am with you, and you will seek me. And even as I said to the Jews, where I, where I am going, you are not able to come. <clears throat> and so there's a little bit more to it. But he says he's going away. And of course, we already talked about the question that Peter has down below. But if you look down in chapter 14, chapter 14 in verse 2, it says, uh, and in my father's house there are many places to abide. If it were not so, I would have would not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, then I am coming again to receive you to myself. Mine says would have told you. I would have. Yeah, you, you kind of misspoke there. Would have. And if I. You said have would not tell you. Yeah. yeah oh. Yeah, you misspoke. Oh, and if not, I would have I would have told you. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Sorry, I was. That's what happens sometimes. No, <laughs> yeah. Now let's look down here in chapter fourteen, uh, and let's go down to verses eleven and twelve. And we looked last week at verse eleven. It says, "Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. But if not, believe because of believe because of the works, or on account of the works." So his works were supposed to testify to him, and that brings us to verse twelve. Truly, truly, I say to you that the one believing in me, the works that I do, that one will do, <clears throat> and greater than these, he will do. So the one believing in him is going to do works, works comparable to those that Jesus did. But on top of that, he says they're even going to do greater works. So there's a reason we looked at those first two verses. There's a couple, what are, what are a couple ways we can understand the word greater? When people read this, greater works. In quantity or quality? In, quali in quality or quantity, yes. Okay. Now, in light of the two verses that we read, which one of those is most likely the case? Quantity. 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 How long did Jesus minister? Yeah, around three years, exactly. Um, I, was thinking, I was thinking about myself. I've been saved for over 50 years. Been saved over 50 years? And yeah, have you had a lot more opportunities to do works in that space of time than Christ had in, he had three years to do that. I've had close to 50. You, you've had over 50. Uh, um, that's, that's a lot of time to be doing works. If greater meant quality of works, then we'd have to ask, well, what, 
you know, what have we, what would we have done that would be greater than what he did? And I don't know. I can't think of any greater on that and that nature. Um, what are works that? What are some of the works that Jesus did? Healing. Healing. Brought some people back to life. Brought some people back to life. That's right. He doesn't. He doesn't specifically get at that yet here. But we already have met that. If if we were reading the Gospel of John, we already met with that statement back in John three, right? The one practicing the truth, he comes to light that it might be seen that his works are worked by God. Thinking of these works that Jesus did, um, what works did he do that we don't have repeated? By the apostles, can you think of some? You mentioned some in there. Fed five thousand. Yeah. Yeah. We have we have no account. I if it happened, we have no account of it. Walking but rem- yeah, walking on water. There's no account that any of them did that. They didn't die for our sins. They, well, there's definitely a work that that none of them did. That's for sure. I didn't even I wouldn't even thought of that. But that's actually a really good one. Um, changing water to wine, that one's it. Feeding, feeding 5,000, changing the water to wine and walking on water. All of those are signs in the Gospel of John that he did that are not repeated by the apostles. But he raises Lazarus. Does Do any of the apostles raise anybody? Yeah. Do they? Yeah, I yeah. think so. Didn't he? Paul do something with a napkin or something like that? Well, we're going to look at that, but Paul... Paul, um, Eutychus, remember, falls out that third story window, falls down, and Paul goes and takes him up, and he comes back to life. Peter goes up into that upper room with Tabitha, or Dorcas, and raises her back to life after she had died. And a little space of time had passed with there. Eutychus was pretty, it was almost immediate, but Tabitha had been a while. Okay. Um... Casting out demons. Did they cast did the disciples cast demons yes, out? Yes, Peter and Silas got into a whole lot of trouble doing no, that. No, Paul and Silas. Oh, Paul, Paul, Paul and Silas, said. yeah. Whole yeah, they trouble. did. Yeah. And uh, so we have we have indications that they did things like that. Did they heal people? Yes. Yeah. The first the first big sign miracle that happens in Acts is Paul and John going up to the temple at time of prayer. And there's the man that's lame. So yeah, these they were they were doing these kinds of signs uh, during this time. Let's um, let's just take a look. I'm going to look at a few different statements um, in this regard. So let's go over to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. And we read, it says, and uh, um, verse 8, 19 and verse 8. We're in Acts 19, verse 8. We'll wait till you. Acts 
So Acts 19, verse 8. What we're, we're just to bring you up to speed, we're talking about a comment that Jesus makes where he says that the disciples, and I would say it includes us too, are going to do greater works than he did. And we're doing greater in terms of number, not kind, because there are things that he did that we don't repeat. We just got done talking about some of the signs he did in John that aren't repeated by them. But we have a lot of time. Jesus ministered for three years, and some of us will minister for many years, potentially, by comparison. So we're in Acts chapter 19, then in verse 8, and it says, But having entered into the synagogue, he spoke boldly over, over a space of three months, debating and persuading concerning the kingdom of God. But when there were some that were hardened and disobeyed, and they were speaking evil of the way <clears throat> before of the multitude... It says, uh, he withdrew from them and he took the disciples and was daily then discussing in the school of Tyrannus. School, if you remember, <coughs> was a word that meant a meeting hall. So this man Tyrannus had a meeting hall. And so he's meeting over there in that. <coughs> Josh, interestingly enough, pointed something out on this the other night. And men's group that I thought was interesting that I'd never thought about. And he says, this is actually one of the first times where you actually have believer, a believer that intentionally is separating from unbelievers. And he separates, he takes the believers away from the unbelievers because the unbelievers are being so disruptive. And so <coughs> let's, let's put it this way. What would happen if every Sunday when we came to church and the different people that teach in the church, wherever they are, maybe even in Peggy's class over here, you know, and the kids are in there. And you get people that come in and sit down in the class every week, and all they do is yell and mock it, and they just argue with you constantly all the time. Now, we all understand if you had somebody that argued some, you could maybe handle that. But if it be became something that became a regular occurrence, that becomes disruptive to learning, Okay. And it becomes for some people, especially if you got new believers, sometimes that can become confusing. So he does this. He's he's first in in the synagogue, does this for three months, and uh, it tells us. And in verse ten, after they go to this meeting hall of Tyrannus, the school of Tyrannus, it says this happened over the space of two years, so that all those inhabiting Asia they heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So Paul stays in Ephesus longer than he stays in any other place with the exception of when he's locked up in prison. But this is the longest he stayed in one community with a church. And it says in verse 11, and it says, and miracles then were coming to be, God performing them through the hands of Paul, so that even upon the sick, there were being taken away from him handkerchiefs or aprons, uh, and they were taken away and... <clears throat> They were and they were being touched then to those that had diseases and evil spirits that went out from them. So you imagine they, you know, they take I could reach over and take one of these Kleenexes and they're touching these to Paul and they take them away and they give them to uh, to people that are sick and their disease leaves them and people that have demons and the demons come out. So it's not even that Paul personally was present, laying hands and commanding things. They're actually doing this other thing. Um, I don't know if any of you have ever watched any religious television. I wouldn't encourage you to watch a lot of religious television, but um, sometimes it's educational, and you've got people today that try to do what Paul did, and they have little handkerchiefs that they will send to you for a gift of $10. 
Paul, people are just bringing stuff and they're just touching Paul and they're going off and people are being healed. Paul's not charging a penny for this. And today, you got hucksters that in the name of, of God, in the name of Christ, are trying to heal people by selling this kind of stuff online. And this goes on. You also have, as, as he then goes on and talks about um, a uh, Jewish, um, uh, these sons of these Jewish, this Jewish priest, that they were being exorcists. And you got this crazy thing where they try to cast a demon out of somebody and the person empowered by those demons jumps on those guys and those guys run running out all beaten up by this guy. And there were seven of those sons, by the way, that were basically thrashed by one man because demons are more powerful than we are. And they made pe people more powerful. You remember in the gospel when Jesus comes to the, the, the demoniac in the Gadarenes, he said they tried to put chains on him and break, he would break chains which is crazy. I always wonder, they obviously have to do something because normally your skin and your bones couldn't handle you breaking chains. So, but this is what's going on. And it, this is, these are miracles that are taking place. Let's go back. Let's go back here in the book of Acts, back to chapter five. We should have started back here and worked up to chapter 19, but I really like that statement, the way that, that goes there. But in uh, Acts 5 and find verse 12 when you get there, and this is after, uh, this is after Ananias and Sapphira both die uh, due to lying to the Spirit about what they had done. And it says in verse 12, but by the hands of the apostle, there were coming to be signs and one, many signs and wonders among the people and uh, they were all of one mind, every one of them in the porch of Solomon. So notice it says uh, that many signs and wonders were being done by the apostles in that context. Turn over to chapter six here in Acts, Acts chapter six and verse eight. This was a review because it's been a while since I read through the book of Acts. And so I had forgotten this part of it. I always think of Stephen in terms of him giving his defense before the, before the, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council. But it says in verse 8, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing wonders and great signs among the people. So here even the Stephen, who's not an apostle. And I think that this is important because it shows us that the apostles were first gifted like this, but other people also received gifts. They received the ability to do these different things. And here's Stephen, a man that was chosen as a deacon. Uh, turn to chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. When you get there, we're going to go down to verse... Um, let's go to verse 6. Yeah, so let's go to verse 6. This is... Uh, um, in the context here, um, let's go to verse 4. Let's go back up to verse 4. It says, And there were those that were being scattered, and they went about preaching the word. And now Philip, having gone down to the city of Samaria, was preaching to them the Christ. And the crowds were paying attention to him, and they were saying to the things that were being spoken by Philip with one accord, and they heard him, and they came to see the signs that he was doing. So Philip is doing a sign. Again, Philip's not an apostle. Philip was one of the deacons. We end up finding later that Philip is an evangelist. He's one that announces good news. If you look down from verse 6 and look down uh, to verse 13, there's a man that had been a magician that had 
people he he liked uh, he liked the attention that he did magic of sort not magic like we think show of hands or a show of hands sleight of, of hand thank you uh, not by sleight of hand but people he was actually doing something I would suggest probably by uh, by the power of demons and such and but he becomes a believer and so he's not doing that anymore and it tells us in verse 13 and Simon himself also believed and he was baptized and he was following Philip and he was seeing the signs and the miracles that were done and he was amazed interestingly enough because in the context it says twice in here that the people had been amazed by Simon now Simon's amazed watching what uh, Philip is doing and I think that's important because Philip doing a genuine miracle worked through him by God I would suggest that that miracle is uh, was far more significant than the little miracles that um, uh, Simon had been doing kind of like if you went back to Egypt and you remember Moses does signs before Pharaoh and then Pharaoh's magicians they duplicate some of those signs I always think like the one time I think that there's gnats or flies I think this is one of them if I remember correctly and they're biting people all over and they make more gnats and I'm thinking well that's not a very good sign a good sign would have been make all the gnats go away but see they can't undo what God did they could only mimic it but eventually they couldn't do the signs that God was doing they could mimic some but they didn't have the power to do exactly and fully everything that God did so Philip so we've had um the apostles doing signs and wonders. We've seen Stephen doing signs and wonders. We see Philip doing uh, signs and wonders uh, in here. Turn to chapter 14, Acts 14 and verse 3. We're going to go to verse 1, Acts 14, 1 to start with here. And it came about in Iconium, and I was just think it's helpful for us to read I wish I would have known where all these places were when I was a kid. You know, I was, you hear all these names and you didn't think about this, but modern day Turkey, <laughs> you know, we called, they called it Asia Minor then, but we don't refer to it as Asia. But modern day Turkey is where Iconium uh, was at that time. Now they came to Iconium uh, and they entered then into the synagogue of the Jews and they spoke thus so that, notice this, a great multitude, both of Jews and Greeks believed. This is one of the places where it's not just some, but a great number of them believed. And the Jews that were disobedient and stirred up and they made the souls of the Gentiles. Uh, Jim was talking about the, the question of soul a, a little bit on Sunday. And this is a good place to see how you get, how you get the soul riled up to make you um, uh, act in this way. And uh, it says, and they were for a long time, they spent their speaking boldly upon the word, witnessing to the word of his grace, I just have to ask, this is important for where we're going to go next. What does he mean when he says testifying, witnessing to the word of his grace? What does he mean by that in a nutshell? Well, in the context that the Gentiles or the Greeks still now had a position just like the Jews that they believed in, mm -hmm. that they'd be one. And that that was totally grace. It was. I I would I would push it even further. What? I would even push it to say that what he's doing there, because he's continuing to speak there for a long time. It says that I would say he's even he's teaching these people grace living. 
we've got two statements earlier over here. We have one in chapter 13 and one in chapter 14, um, or both of them are here in chapter 14, where it indicates that Paul is talking to these people about grace. He's teaching them to live by grace and not to live by law. That's why Paul ends up, that's why Paul and Barnabas at the end of chapter 14 or the beginning of chapter 15 end up getting sent down to Jerusalem to settle that matter. Now, what's the problem with teaching people to live by grace at that time? What? It opposes law. It opposes law. And it was also new. It's something new. That's why Paul says our way of life, Paul tells us over in Ephesians, our way of life was a mystery. You can't go to the Old Testament and find out that anybody was ever going to live by grace. You can see grace in the Old Testament, but you don't see that it was a way of life. And so he says here, he's testifying to the word of grace and giving signs and wonders were, were being done by his hand. So he is, he's sitting here and he's, why, why, why are they doing signs and wonders in this time? What's the significance of that? In the context that these people have gotten saved and Paul is now testifying to the word about its grace. Okay, what, but what's significant about this? That the Lord is still alive. Okay, that's true. To, but to show that um, these works were from God, that it's God's works. It's true, God's work. So it's that's God's work, and then what does so what does that have to does that have anything to say about the word about God's grace? That it's it's authenticating the yeah. message. Yeah, it's yes. off, exactly. Yeah. Uh -huh. It's the same thing Jesus did. Jesus did miracles to authenticate that he was who he was. We saw that. He says, if you don't if you don't believe what I'm saying, then look at the works and believe because of them. Right. Well, the same thing was true with these people. So flip over to Ephesians chapter 2, or Hebrews, excuse me. So they were saying that through living through grace, and then they were showing those to say that because they're living through grace, you're going to do that? No. Um, what, what's happening is he's speaking to these people who have been living under law. At least the, the Jews had been living under law. And probably some of these Gentiles that were kind of spending time with the Jews, they also were trying to live by law. And now... God is ending law. He's, he's ending it as a way of life. That's not how we live our Christian life. And he is now teaching them how to live by grace. But that's a new thing. That was shocking. It was hard for people to handle. Paul ran into problems with that, not only with the Jews on the outside, but he even had problems with, with believers sometimes that were like, oh, wait a minute. And to this day, we have problems with people that try to teach that we're still supposed to live by the Mosaic Law. We're supposed to keep the Ten Commandments. And they still want to do that. And when you teach, really teach grace living, those people have a real problem with that. In fact, um, I think I shared this Sunday afternoon. We did that Bible study on not under law, the significance of that statement under, out of Romans 6. And um, I had... A month ago or so, I'm going to guess, because I wrote, I wrote down uh, the time information on this thing because I wanted to be able to go back and find this this video. But there's a, a very famous um, younger speaker within the Southern Baptists, and he um, 
he was talking about the statement grace upon grace. And I saw this and I thought, oh, I'd be interested to see that because that, that comes out of John 1.17. We have all received grace upon grace. I think it's 1.17, but it's right there. And so I'm, I'm listening because I want to hear what he understands about grace. And eh, well, he's kind of sort of getting it. And then he says, but what do you do with the law? And he makes this st statement. The law is God's grace to mankind. And by, and by God's grace, he gives us the ability to keep the law and observe the law. He says there are people that... that wow, he found the temple in Jerusalem and the priests <laughs> and Wow. I know, I know, and it just, but it just shows you. I mean, and he has a, he has a very, I mean, he's very renowned, very well known within within the Southern Baptist group, and uh, I mean, we're talking about big church, you know, and he's pretty hip, you know. You must not be reading the Bible. It says you have to follow the whole law, not just the moral or whatever you can follow. You follow the whole law, or you're cursed. I I've listened to a few more of his things, just trying to understand where he, what he asked, what he's saying about this. But it, what it comes down to is, there are people yet to this day. The reason I use that is there are people yet today that insist that we're supposed to be keeping the law. I don't. This is I don't think this is shocking to any of us. But um, but the thing is, is God when God told us to live by grace. That was new, and it was hard for people, and so God authenticated that message. So in Hebrews chapter two, Hebrews chapter two, I'm just going to begin it's reading with. Even more pronounced to me, knowing that there's only been about 120 years in all of the centuries that man has been around that God did authenticating works. One of them was with Moses, mm -hmm. 40 years with Moses. 40 years with Jesus and the apostles and 40 years with Elijah and Elisha. And so it's very marked that he's saying, listen up, mm -hmm. look. Yeah. It's not like it's been going on all through history, yeah. you're saying, yeah. There isn't any, it's just this little tiny snippets of time that he had this authentication ministry going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that actually is a really good point. He reserved if God if for God were doing signs and wonders all the time like some Christians want him to be doing, it kind of becomes commonplace. It wouldn't be grace anymore, would it? Um, it just it wouldn't be faith. Let's put it that way, because faith 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 always is looking for signs. It's always looking for something it can see. What faith? Or, excuse me. Faith is not looking for Thank signs. You. There it is. I'm sorry. I said it wrong. Faith. Thank you for catching that. Faith does not look for signs. It does not look for proof. It just believes God's promise. But human faith, human faith has to always see signs and wonders. Jesus said that. If you remember back in John 4, when he speaks to the, to the nobleman, he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will never believe. Because that's human faith versus the kind of faith we're supposed to have, which is faith that comes from the Holy Spirit. So, um, yeah, it, I was just thinking about it. It would become commonplace. Israel watched for 40 years in the wilderness. Peg and I were just talking about this. There were a couple different things that you mentioned the other day when we were talking about this. But one of them is that their clothes, their clothes and their sandals didn't wear. Could you imagine walking around in the wilderness for 40 years? 
you know, I've got clothes that I've had that have lasted for a while, which is amazing because I'm kind of hard on clothes, but it's because I don't wear them every day. But in their culture, most of these people, people probably only had two or three changes of clothes. That meant, that means that you're wearing mostly the same clothes all the time. And on top of that, you're doing daily work and you're moving about and they're traveling out there in, in a very inhospitable environment. And their clothes don't wear out. What was the other thing that you mentioned? Tables. The food oh. from heaven, the uh, yeah. medical yeah. treatment of looking at the serpent on the standard. Mm -hmm. And if they did, they wouldn't die from the snake bites. Mm -hmm. That was pretty yeah. amazing. The oh. eagle's wings. Bearing them on eagle's wings. To myself. I frightened to myself. And it's because they kept <laughs> walking. That was the passage. Because Peg was going through this with her class. And... We always looked like they went out and they, I always had this idea that they walked and then they camped. Mm -hmm. this, is go, this is heading to Sinai after they leave Egypt. This is not going from Sinai north. This is on their that way. still in Egypt, remember? That's still Egypt. I know. But as they're going, as they're making that trip, though, to Sinai, Mount Sinai is what I'm trying to say. While, right spot, while they're making, yeah, while they're making that trip, they keep doing that trip the whole time. The only time they stop is when they get stuck at the Red Sea. Yep. Otherwise, he keeps them moving. I was like, how would so they survive that? How would you not wear out? And then she said, God said, I bore you on eagle's wings. Who, who can be sustained to just keep walking and keep moving and keep living just moving like that? It really is amazing. And then on top of that, I always think above the, the tabernacle, once they built that, but even before, it's this pillar of fire. Just think of that. You got this camp with all these people and they don't all have to light torches and go around and light night lights in the streets among their camp. They've got this massive fire that glows at night that lights everything up so they can see where they are. And during the day, it's a pillar that shelters them from the heat, the blazing heat of the sun so that they're not all getting their skin drying out to nothing. And he's doing this for them. And that goes on for 40 years. And that becomes commonplace that that's God. And they not only watch that, but they watch Moses go up to the temple and that cloud comes down and comes to the temple or to the tabernacle and meets with, with Moses. They can see it's unusual. Speaking to the rock and the pretty yeah. awesome. Yeah. yeah. And yet all of that became commonplace to them. And pretty soon they were just like, yeah, whatever. What's God done for yeah, yeah. And I, I have to say, I mean, every one of us in here, I trust, we've all experienced God do things that we're going, boy, there's no way I planned that. There's no way I made that all work out like that. And yet, you know, we sometimes forget that and we're kind of going, we're having that hard week and going, what's God done for me lately? We forget the same thing, that God has done stuff. Even if he's not doing these kinds of miracles, he's still doing works on our behalf. So Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, and it says, And on account of this, it is necessary that we pay even more attention to the things that we have heard, lest we should drift. We're in Hebrews 2, 1. In other words, he's, he's really talking about Christian living. He's not talking about living by the law of Moses. He's talking about the truths that affect how we live, knowing who we are in Christ, knowing to relate to that, knowing to be in how God's working through members of the body of Christ. That's one of the things that in the, I would say in the last two years, maybe, I'm just gonna say in the last two years that I, that has dawned on me going through Ephesians. I can say, God, I really need fill in the blank. 
and I'm waiting for God to somehow download to me whatever this thing I need to think about or whatever it is. I never stopped to ever think that maybe, maybe Gary will say something and God is speaking to me through Gary, but that's exactly his point in Ephesians 4. God is still speaking, but he speaks through people down here and he ministers to us through people. Does he minister to us directly sometimes? I would say yes, but a lot of times he ministers to us through people that he actually sends to do things for us, to share something with us that we need to know, to encourage us, whatever it might be. And so he says, we need to pay it. So that's part of this truth. So we need to pay attention to these things unless we drift. We can drift if we don't remember these things that, he, that we've been taught. For if the word spoken through angels, what word was that? That's the law. God spoke some of it directly to Moses, but the law is much bigger than just what God spoke. So the, he used angels to speak some of that to Moses there. And every transgression, that's a word from the, for the law. Transgression means there's a command, there's a law, and you can break it. That's what a transgression is. You're breaking a law. It's a bad thing, by the way. And every disobedient received a righteous payback. In other words, under the law, if you broke the law, you got in trouble. You had to do something to make amends. So how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the re first received to be spoken of through the Lord, uh, through the Lord, and then was confirmed to us by those that heard. So the Lord first spoke about it. Where did the Lord first speak about Christian truth? In the upstairs room. In the upstairs room that we're looking at right now in John 13 through 17. That's where it started. Jesus begins to teach us about these new things. But it's the ones that heard him. Paul wasn't there. He didn't hear Jesus start this over there in John 13. He wasn't in that room. And he says, so it was confirmed to us by those that heard. So Peter and John, they were there. Andrew, these guys, all these, these disciples, they heard Jesus speak these things. And it says, God testifying both by signs, wonders, and various kinds of miracles, even by the things from the Holy Spirit, distributing as he desires. So he says, God confirmed when these guys told us, hey, Jesus gave us a new command to love. And then they could do a miracle. And God says, look at that. Did you see that guy just do a miracle? What he just said was true. And I demonstrated that. I confirmed it by a miracle. Hey, we are all now in Christ and we are all part of this new entity, which Paul ends up telling us is the body of Christ. These guys have to kind of think, learn that one from Paul. But they knew that we were all in him and we were all one. And they share that. And that's a new thing. And then they do a miracle and it confirmed that. So think of how many times, if you think about this, as these people traveled around and went to lots of different places, Peter travels, Paul travels, John travels. We saw Philip and Stephen, well, Stephen didn't travel. Stephen died there in Jerusalem, but Philip traveled. These, and the other disciples traveled. We don't have a lot of, we don't have a lot of talk about where the other where the other um, uh, disciples went. But we have like, I think they say Thomas ended up going to the east and they have record that he went as far as India is where he stopped. 
And I believe Matthew actually went down into North Africa and went as far as Ethiopia down there in North Africa. This is all extra biblical that we don't have it in the Bible, but we have records of it, church history records of where a lot of these disciples ended up going because God told them to go out and he did make them go out. Eventually, they all wanted to stay together and eventually pushed them out through persecution. And then they all went out to the places they were supposed to go. Scriptures tell us that Paul's goal was to get to Rome and he didn't want to stop in Rome. He wanted to go on to Spain. Whether Paul made it to Spain or not, we don't know. There seems to be evidence that he did make it to Spain and when he returned to Rome, that's when he got in trouble and arrested the second time. And he died at that time. But yes. Um, for the second, um, chapter two, uh, verse two, and it says for the disobedience received a justice like a, like every time you are disobedient, you will be like something harsh or you have to do something. We don't have to do that no more, right? That's right. He's like the, the Lord is like, like karma. If you do something bad, right? That's right. Okay. The transgressions were the ones in the law. That's mm -hmm. talking about the law. Yeah. So, so, so an example, and we used this the other day. If, if I stole let's say you're raising cows because that's one of the examples out of the law. If I steal your cow, if I get caught for that under the law, I have to pay you two cows back. That really makes you think about stealing. I'm not just going to have to make up and return that cow or pay, pay you for a cow. I'm going to have to give you two cows. Wow. What? Well, you had to make restitution for that cow that you killed and and another, you had to give him another one on top of that. That was a penalty. It's just like if well, around here if you go and steal a excuse me, you steal a car, you can get in trouble. You can get in trouble if you steal livestock. We have laws. We have laws regarding people stealing livestock just like they did under the Mosaic law, and people can be punished for those things. Well, the the Mosaic law also had punishment. And that's what he means by that just recompense is that word recompense means a payback. The payback is you did something bad, you're going to get paid back with something bad. <laughs> not a, oh, we're sorry that you did that thing. Try not to do it again. No, law wasn't that, like that. You, you broke the law and you were in trouble. In fact, remember, seven of the Ten Commandments, if you broke them, you were to be put to death. They killed you for breaking seven of the Ten Commandments. And stealing, you had to make restitution, but if you stole a person that we would call kidnapping, you were put to death. And bearing false witness, you could get in trouble because if I bear false witness against Peg and say, yes, I saw her steal his cow, and it's found out she didn't steal the cow, but I did, she, she would have had to pay two cows back. Now guess what I have to do? I have to pay the two cows back. But... If I say, I saw her kill that person, she would have had to die for killing them. But if it's proved that she's innocent and she didn't kill that person, my false witness, because it would have ended in her death, I had to be put to death. So seven of the commandments you always died for, and two of them you died under certain circumstances. Just shows you how serious. When he, so when he says a, a just recompense, he's mean, it paid back a pretty nasty penalty, a tough penalty. Knowing that it was a theocracy, 
where we have a government and, and we have government by the people yeah, supposedly. So we're not released from the penalty of bad things we do under the government system. It's only before God. Yes, yeah. Yeah, if you if you steal down here and stuff like that, you're you're still in trouble with the government. But God may not do any. He may he he may not do anything with you. So, exactly. that's grace. That's grace. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's Romans Romans eight one. However, he could discipline you because you're his child, and he doesn't want you acting like that before the unsaved world. Yeah. Stop stealing and work with your hands. Yeah. He says, stop stealing and work with your hands that you might help others. Yeah. Does that make sense? Okay, good. Good. So, he's doing miracles. I, 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 was in the middle of, I was in the middle of all where all these disciples went. You might have wondered, why was I talking about that? Because as they traveled, every time they went to these new places all these Jewish communities, all these synagogues that they would stop in, and they didn't have synagogues in every city. Paul didn't have a synagogue in Philippi. But when they went, this was happening. As they're giving this new revelation, they keep doing more miracles as they go out. So just think of these miracles just kind of going out in all these places as they're, as they're going out because people needed to have confirmed that this word that was being given, that this word was genuine that what God was saying was true, okay? So that's why he's doing it. And that is the reason, if we keep all of that in mind then, if we go back over there to John uh, chapter 14, this is one of the reasons he says here in John chapter 14, in verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, the one believing in me, the works that I do, that one will also do, and greater works than these he will do, because I'm going to the Father. His time in which he was doing works ended. When he, when he ascended on high and returned to heaven, he stopped doing those works personally, down here, showing up, doing them. But the disciples... And other believers, such as Stephen and Philip, that was important, I think, for us to see that we had some non-apostles, non-apostles non that were in that upper room, that they also were doing these signs and wonders. And doing, he says, greater in number because they're going out into all these places in the world. And he is confirming this message that they're giving. Well, one of the messages that they're confirming, we're, we're talk, we were talking primarily about confirming this message about grace, but on top of that, they're also giving witness to the fact that this Jesus Christ that they're telling people about, that he indeed is raised from the dead. Because I think about that. I mean, that, even though Jesus raised the dead, and Paul raises a dead person, and Peter raises a dead person, that was not normal. I mean, that this is why here... 20 centuries later, we've got all kinds of people around the world. You really believe that this Jesus really rose from the dead? And I don't know how many of you remember, um, but um, Sasha told me this years ago that early on after he got saved, one of the things that he did was he was talking to people and he found out that he was running into people that called themselves Christians that didn't really believe Jesus was alive. 
And so he just started going around and he just, he says he went to, he said he went, according to him, okay, so just going to take him at his word. He said he went to every church in Moses Lake. And he was shocked by the fact that more than half of the pastors he talked to up there did not believe Jesus was physically, bodily alive. They said he rose spiritually, but they didn't believe in the physical resurrection. And yet these guys were pastoring churches. So that's more than half of the ones he talked to, you know, up there. And which just shows you, you've got a lot of people, even people that call themselves Christians, even people that are going to church and even maybe people that are teaching the Bible and pastoring that don't believe in the resurrection. And if you don't believe in the resurrection, you're not saved. If you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you're not saved. Believers can fail to believe in resurrection in general because that happened in Corinth, that there were people that were going, they didn't, they were talking about, they didn't think we were going to res resurrect but they didn't deny the resurrection of Christ. And that's why Paul has to say, well, stop thinking about it. If you don't, if you deny resurrection, that means even Christ didn't raise. And that's supposed to kind of get their attention to go, oh, well, I can't say that. <laughs> See, but uh, it, it's, the, all of this is something that's very new. Now, there's one other thing that he, um, that he is uh, was talking about back in this context. And I want you to go back to verse 10 here in John 14. If you remember this, we went over this, we hit this last week. In John 14, 10, he says, Do not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. The words which I speak, I do not speak from myself, but the Father, the one that abides in me, he does his works. And I find this is important that he uses the word works and works words and works and he kind of marries the two of them because he doesn't see these as two separate things he feels that if he speaks something that's a work that god gave him to do and on top of that oftentimes not always but oftentimes god gives a work had a work for jesus to do to confirm that word so he has when when he raises the the lame man in john 5 he raises him, but it gives him a basis to talk to people about things that God gave him to do, that I have authority to raise the dead. I have authority to raise a person up. I have authority to work on the Sabbath day. You know, he does all these different things. He, he heals the blind man in John 9. I, I, have, the, I have the ability to give light, light uh, sight, excuse me, not light, sight to the blind. I can do these kinds of things. And, and, it, and it issues in a conversation that he's able to have. Actually, most of the conversation in John 9 is actually between the blind man and, and the, the, the leaders, the, the, the people. Jesus' conversation doesn't come until you get into John 10. And if you just remember a few weeks ago on Sundays, when we were looking at the eternal covenant, we saw that the good shepherd, that John 10, where he talks about the good shepherd, that's part of that conversation. It's right there. It's not like this happens days or months later. That happened right immediately with the man, the blind man being cast out because the leaders are saying, well, we're not blind, are we? And then Jesus goes, well, and he tells the story about the sheep and the shepherd. And it's all part of the, exactly the same, the same account. So his words and his works go hand in hand. So let's go over to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. <clears throat> I 
I don't know if, if you remember um, a few minutes ago when we're talking, when we first started talking about we doing these works and the apostles doing these works and Stephen and, and uh, Philip doing these works, Leslie made the comment that in reality, God's doing these works through us. Okay, well, let's take a look here. E Ephesians chapter four. Notice this in, the, in this context. Ephesians four, let's go back up to um, verse 11. And he gave some apostles, and on the other hand, some prophets, and on the other hand, some evangelists, and on the other hand, some shepherd teachers for the equipping of the saints, for a work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. We're going to skip over a lot of things in between, but we're going to go down to uh, verse 20. He's telling them, don't live like the Gentiles, uh, back in... Uh, in verse 17 down to through verse 19, he says, but you have not learned the Christ like this. In other words, the Christ has nothing to do with the way these Gentiles work. If indeed you have, notice this now, if indeed you have heard him and by him you were taught. Now, does anybody know where the city of Ephesus is? Turkey. It's in Turkey. It's on the west coast of Turkey, a long ways from Jerusalem. Did Jesus ever travel outside of that realm of Judea and Galilee? No. His ministry was in a very small chunk of that ground. He did make it over to the coast, kind of over by Sidon a little bit once, but his ministry is very, very local. These people are... Try to picture this from your point of view. He's way down here. Where's that? Where's the end marker? Let's do this. Tim, you can erase all that. Stuff. Oh no, no. I just, I just need this. Here's North Africa. Here's the Middle East. Here's Turkey. And Greece comes down over here. This is the Aegean Sea and uh, Bosporus up here. Anyway, and Ephesus is over here, and Jerusalem is way down here. And this is this isn't this isn't a hundred miles away. This is hundreds of miles away. I should have calculated that out. I mean, this is a huge distance. So here's the question. Jesus, when he's writing, when he go, when he gets to Ephesus, he arrives in Ephesus almost 30 years, almost 30 years after Jesus ascended. Well, let's say 25 years. Almost 25 years after Jesus has ascended. How many of these people in Ephesus had any chance at all of ever hearing Jesus or being taught by Jesus? I'm going to venture to say none of them. Because there are about, what is it, about a dozen disciples of John the Baptist that he meets first in Ephesus. But even those guys, they'd only heard that John talk, talked about this Christ, but they'd never met him. Paul has to tell them who he is. That's over in, over in the book of Acts. So here's the point. Nobody in the city of Ephesus, except for Paul himself, had ever met the Lord Jesus Christ to listen to him and to be taught by him. So how does Paul say, if indeed you have heard him, and been taught by him. How does he say that? Because Jesus does the works. Because what? Jesus still does the works, so he gives the word to the person or to whatever it may be. Exactly. 
That's why we went. Oh, because Jesus still does the works. He still works for these people. So that's why we started in Red Verse 11, because he mentions four groups of people. They're all, they're all people that are involved in Revelation. Apostles and prophets gave Revelation. Evangelists and shepherds share that Revelation. We don't invent new Revelation. We take the Revelation from the apostles and prophets and we disseminate it. And so if you understand that, and they're, they're not the only ones. I mean, they're not the only ones, but he just mentions those four. If, and this is why, better listen up, Ben. This is real serious stuff. When you teach, no. well, I'm serious. I mean, I take this seriously. I, 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 I would have to say almost every week, I'd like to say every week, but there's some weeks I'm probably lazy. But most weeks I'm always like, I want to be careful with this because I want what I'm saying to represent what God says in his word. I don't want it to represent what I think. And I don't want it to be that I came up with a clever gimmick and I think everybody's going to go, oh, that, that was such a cool sermon. I want them to go, wow, God's word is awesome. It is alive. That's what I wanted to be impressed. I don't want to be impressed by what I was able to put together. And the reason I say that is because when we speak, if we speak accurately, if we represent this well, I don't care what the context is. You can be teaching that group of kids that you've got in your class. You can be representing it to kids at Young Life. Whatever you, wherever you are, if you're handling the word of God well, those people have the potential to be hearing Jesus Christ speak. Does that make it take, does that make take seriously about how we handle the word of God and how we communicate it? Mm -hmm. It makes me think about it a lot. That was something that was kind of drilled into me in seminary. That if you get up and you share your bit, they're hearing you. But if you really work the word and you handle it carefully, hopefully you are representing what it says accurately. And hopefully they are hearing Jesus Christ speak through you. He's doing those works. Same thing. Now he mentioned that. We, we, we mentioned that about there. But I want you to uh, go over to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're just about done. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 5. Verse 4 says, There are diversities of grace. Oh, make sure we're all there. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 4. There are diversities of gifts, but it's the same spirit. And there are diversities of ministries. Ministries is just a fancy way of saying service. It's a lot cooler, you know, when you're talking to somebody, say, what are you doing? Well, I'm doing ministry. Oh, but if you say, I serve people, they're going, oh, at, at a restaurant? <laughs> you know, it doesn't sound that impressive. But that's all the word. In fact, I've told you this before, this word diakonia, it just, it meant common service because it was used of wait. it literally was used of waiters in sidewalk cafes. So it's common service. They don't have one master. They've got as many masters as they have customers that day. And you serve, you're supposed to serve every one of them like they're the only customer there, right? Isn't that kind of the goal of a, of a waiter or waitress? And so he says there are diversities of service, but it's the same Lord. And then the difference, diversities of inworkings, but the same God. But it's that second one, verse 5, diversities of service, but the same Lord. When you use your gift 
or, and he is talking about gifts here, so we will stick with gifts, but it, sometimes we serve outside the realm of our gift, okay? I, I fixed people's toilets for them. That might be the gift of service. It's not the gift of shepherd teacher, but that doesn't mean I can't do that for somebody <laughs> as a believer. And so when you minister your gift or maybe some other area of service, if you do it with the right attitude, you do it remembering who you are in Christ and doing this on behalf of a brother or sister because they're in Christ, that is something directed by the Lord. And they not only, this will kind of go back to our 2 Corinthians 3.3 study when we're looking at the new covenant, they're getting to read you as a letter of Christ. They're getting to see Christ doing something through you in the same way that people can hear you. If you speak the word accurately, people get to hear Christ and learn from him. In the same way, when we serve other believers, people are getting to watch him serve through us. So when Jesus makes that statement to his disciples, the works I do, you're going to do those. And you're going to do greater works. Not more fantastic than I did, but greater in number. Because none of them ever walked on water. None of them fed 5,000. None of them changed water to wine. But they did do some of the works he did, for sure, and did many more. I don't know how long from the time Paul gets saved. Let's Let's... Let's be generous and say Paul gets saved 32 AD. Let's say he gets saved within two years of Christ's ascension. I think it's sooner than that, but that's just my that's guess because the Bible didn't put any dates in there. <laughs> you know. So let's say he gets 30 AD. He dies about 67 AD. So he ministers about 37 years. Actually less than that, because some of that is training time, you know, before God's gonna throw him out on the court and say, play, play ball, he's gonna take him and say, This is the way we do it. And he takes time to train Paul and get him ready to do that work. Okay, and we certainly have that. But still, nonetheless, he serves for quite a while. And he did a lot of works over the course, as well as did Peter, as well as did these people, as well as did Hopefully you and I. I think, it's a, I think it's a good study for you and I to think about that, you know, when we're doing these things, kind of as a compliment to what we just looked at when we we're looking at that new covenant, when we're serving, there's the potential that we actually can be a letter of Christ in however we're serving, that people can actually see or read Christ in us. I don't know, to me that is pretty humbling and exciting all at the same time. Okay, any comments or questions? Yeah. Yeah. You've got all three persons of the Trinity there. You got the Spirit, you got the Lord Jesus Christ, and you got the Father. And they and they each have a role in in your ability to serve. Pretty cool. But that that repetition of that, yeah. There's diversity, but it's still the same God in the end. Thank you. Tim, did you uh, did you say Paul began prior to Christ's ascension? Is that you said? No, no. Well, I might have, knowing me, but that's not what I meant. Let's say I'm saying 32 A.D. 
let's say that that's within two years of Jesus having ascended. The, yeah, yeah. The, this is assuming he is, that he dies and ascends in 30 AD, which we don't know that. But yeah, so that's what I was talking about. How long would you take the stoning of St. Stephen uh, after Christ's earthly work? Um, in a lot of ways, I'm kind of always thinking that that happens probably within the first year of the church when you read through those events. That stuff seems like a lot of that stuff is just happening very in very fast order. But we don't know. Yeah. But So that's just my opinion. And I can guarantee I could go upstairs and I've got commentaries on the book of Acts where they actually try to put chronologies together of what the events and they're not all in agreement but but there is a there is some good general agreement on on these things some of the specifics they disagree on but, but it is an interesting point you make because I you know as you were talking I tried to bring up a modern day map of that area and it's so easy to equate geography with our transportation modes today, and uh, you know, geography is not a stumbling block. I mean, scholars can make it home from Papua New Guinea, fly there, and, and there's hurdles to go through. But that's more like paperwork and making sure everything's processed. Um, but yeah, when you start thinking about these early disciples, apostles, and disciples out on the road and, and sharing Christ. Um, this is to a world that is like he did what you know and when, we, when I read the, the epistles I'm looking at you know theology I mean a lot of it is theology but you just got to think a lot of times they had to back up the train because you know we're, we're all these other folks uh, acute with the Jewish culture and customs and the promised Messiah and I mean, I know the Old Testament shares about a lot of people groups, that, you know, through through the genealogy that, that there was a wide area, and so there probably was some exposure uh, in in the Middle East. But yeah, it's pretty amazing that he's able to go in there and, in short order, have people flip their lives to the gospel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, they, the Romans had a pretty good road system. Yeah. And it was a peaceful time, so they weren't scared about, there wasn't as many robbers as there had been previously. So that was, uh, you know, when it says that Jesus was born under the law as, how does it say it in? Um, Galatians chapter four, yeah. uh, born, under the, born of a woman, born under the law. Yeah. and. Doesn't say something about it, just the right time or something. Like that. Oh, at at yeah, at the fullness yeah. of time. I mean, yeah. it was God had brought things together. Sure. Just at a certain point that allowed the message to go out. Um, yeah. Too. For sure. I mean, just I, I'm sure somebody could bring up the map. You know, I've seen in my my Bible in. Pages, the, the routes that Paul did on his first and third journeys. But I just look at this right here. It's like over 800 miles <laughs> to bend around the Mediterranean Sea and get under that. That's just like me using my finger and going blah, blah, blah. But that's a long way to take the message. Mm -hmm. 
in terms of in terms of the scope of people, we're not going to go over it. But if you're interested in kind of chasing all of this down, you might go over to Acts chapter two and look in verse. Um, if you go to verse eight, I'll just read this because you have this is this is Pentecost. These people had come for Passover, and now fifty days later, they they're celebrating Pentecost. And it says, and how are we hearing each in his own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites. You know where those people are? That's Iran and Iraq. So that's way off there to the east, which that's a good distance from Jerusalem that they're, that they're over there. And those living in Mesopotamia, where, where Abraham had come from, to the south of Babylon. And Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, those are up in Turkey, and Phrygia and Pamphylia again, and Egypt. In the regions of Libya and Cyrene, this is across North Africa. I mean, so you just look at all of these different different places that these people were coming from. And there had been persecution against the Jews. There was persecution that came from the Greeks against them. But there are also the other thing that some of us forget about is that um, Shalmaneser came down and took the 10 tribes away. Sennacherib came down, they took those, the 10 tribes away. And they scouted them throughout all that empire. And they've never, they never came back. They were always scattered out there. But that doesn't mean that they were lost and that they gave up all of their, their heritage. They held on to it. Just like, I don't know if you know this, but do you, do you know one of the reasons that it was easy for the Germans to actually locate a lot of Jews during World War II across Europe? Because they were still meeting in synagogues. Almost almost 19 centuries after Jerusalem had been sacked and destroyed, these Jews scattered up there in those areas, they're still meeting in synagogues and they have books with birth records going back hundreds and hundreds of years of who was born to who to who to who to who. <laughs> and it made it easier for them to go and confiscate those things and track people down and try to find people. Because there were Jews that tried to pass themselves off as Gentiles in all of that. So yeah, they, the reason we say all that is because they had been scattered and they'd been scattered to a lot of places. And, uh, and they carried on their traditions the best they could. Today um, we started a history study about Islam. And in Arabia, there was large Christian and uh, Jewish communities um, in And I read, I have a church history in my office, and I haven't read it for a while, I should pull it out, but I remember reading it oh, 15 years ago, and they said that by the third century, third century, so almost, not, not, quite, two, not quite 300 years after Christ died and rises again, the gospel reached mainland China. And churches were established across China and actually flourished, supposedly, according to church history, until eventually, after it had flourished for about 200 to 300 years, they ended up having an emperor that wanted to unify his kingdom, and he felt Christianity was a non-unifying religion. He wanted, it all under, he wanted everybody to practice one religion, and so they wiped out all the churches, shut, made them force, force and made them cease, cease to be around. And... To our knowledge, the gospel wasn't there until um, 
Who's the guy that started China, China Inland Mission? I can't think of his name. But we were talking about traveling because I remember you read that about the story. He got on a ship. He sails around the world to go to China over there. This is this is back in the 1700s. And those people have no... It's today, you know. Josh and Faye get off in the airport down there. They text us, hey, we're landed. <laughs> you know, or you go a little over 100 years ago and they send a telegraph. Hey, we landed. Our ship, our ship docked. These people didn't know for, I think, I, if I remember Hudson the story, Taylor. Hudson Taylor, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it was said that like two or three years passed and the people that had supported him in Europe, they didn't even know if he was around anymore. <laughs> they didn't know if he'd survived the trip. They didn't know if he was alive over there, you know. So things are very different about the way the gospel has gone out. People have traveled. It is kind of interesting to think about all that, so. We get that part about Thomas, too. And I think that's maybe in that church history too. So maybe I should maybe I should go find the copy of that church history. You might enjoy flipping through that a little bit with some of this stuff. So anything else?